don't you think? Those of you that uh, were on that. We may have some people maybe uh, newer to the church and not familiar with Bill and Christina Widdup, but they are missionaries that we sent out from our congregation just a few years ago. And Vanuatu is literally on the other side of the world. And so uh, we sent a crew out there to help them build a school. And uh, you got to see some of that video. Pretty exciting. It is exciting to think about what God is doing around the world. And that we uh, here at Bethel Church are a part of that. We are one small part of that, but we are a part of that. I spent this last week in uh, Missouri ministering to the uh, staff at the headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship outside of St. Louis. And they had their spiritual uh, renewal week, and I was uh, out there to encourage them. I did my Ruth series while I was out there, and that was fun to do again. But uh, CEF, pretty amazing uh, ministry. You may not be familiar with them, but they, maybe you've heard of their uh, uh, five-day clubs or the wordless book or some things like that that they have made fairly common uh, in the evangelical world. But uh, they they are in 175 countries around the world. Their goal is to be in every country of the world by 2017, and they're on their way. Last year, they, in their ministries around the world, they uh, and their missionaries um, prayed with over 3 million children to receive Christ as their Savior. 3 million. That's like a, that's a hard number to sort of get, but that's a big number, isn't it? So exciting things going on at CEF. And uh, I'm going to segue from CEF into our time in God's Word today in 1 Corinthians 3, where you may recall that Paul is drawing an analogy between his ministry and planting and harvesting. CEF is a planting ministry. They are an evangelistic ministry. Paul's ministry was primarily an evangelistic ministry. Then he says that there are those that water and those that grow, those that disciple and build the church. But there were problems in Corinth that Paul is addressing with this analogy, and primarily the biggest problem uh, that we've come across so far are divisions within the congregation. And you'll recall that they were, uh, they sort of had a groupie mentality. They wanted to be groupies of somebody, and so they lined up behind a favorite teacher or a favorite pastor within the church and said, you know what, we're with him. Our identity is with him. And Paul says, listen, did he die for you? Were you baptized in his name? Why would you identify with a man when Christ is the one who has done all these things for you? Find your identity in in him. And so the scriptures now are going to have a very serious word for us. And it's not very often that I uh, would say this, but I believe this to be the case today. If you will carefully consider what God's word has to say today, it will change your eternity. If you carefully consider what God's word has to say today, someday you might look back on this day as a day when you made changes that you will be eternally thankful for. Now let's see if that doesn't happen today. And as we do, you might recall that Paul by vocation was a tent maker. 
And I don't know if construction guys view tent makers as being actually construction guys or not, but it does seem like Paul often saw in buildings and in temples and even in tents a picture of what the church is like. And so he oftentimes draws this analogy, and this is what he's going to do in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, beginning in verse 11. Look at what it says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The analogy now begins with a building. The church is like a building. And every building begins with a foundation. In fact, we saw that in the video. They weren't over there putting the roof on or doing the wiring or doing the plumbing. No, they had to begin by putting the foundation in. And so we saw the video of them very carefully laying the foundation, making sure it's level and flat, making sure that it's secure. Why? Because the building rests upon the foundation. If you don't get the foundation right, the rest of the building is never going to be right. And in salvation, the foundation is not a a, a teacher. The foundation is not a pastor. The foundation is not even an apostle. The foundation of the church is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all that comes from that sets on that truth, who he was and what he did created a foundation of, of, of salvific truth upon which All the other doctrines and all the other teachings and all the other hopes of the church rest. It truly is all about him. We talk about that often, and here we are going to see it again. It is all about him. I had a woman yesterday tell me that uh, she downloaded off our website our All About Him uh, screensaver that we had made, and maybe some of you have done that, and she has that screensaver on the computer at work. And she said to me yesterday, she goes, you know what, I'm like getting lots of comments about that. And she said, just this week or just recently, there was a woman who said, what, what is that? And she goes, it's all about him. Who's him? It's Jesus. And the woman like sort of mocked her about it. And then like a couple days later, she came back and she said, hey, is it, is it still all about him? And the our woman in our church's response was, it's supposed to be. And so anyway, all that to say that that statement is true and is true to what Paul is saying here. Truly, all of this rests upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And everything has meaning as it relates to him. He is the touchstone. He is the, he is the hub. He is the center. And how we explain everything is explained as it relates to him. I mean, everything, all the things that we might read or study or learn, biology or math or the sciences, find their essential central meaning in the person of Christ. Uh, All the things that we work at in our life, the things that have meaning to us in our life, our marriages and our families and our futures, all center upon him. All the doctrines that we believe in and hold to center upon the person and work of Christ. And not just the doctrines, but also the assurances and the hopes regarding eternal life also rest upon those. And not just the assurances and hopes, but the people who believe in them. That's you and me. All of it rests upon Christ. So in the building metaphor, the church is built upon Christ and is being built upward then 
with layer after layer of construction, if you want to say it that way. But the construction consists of the people who are being brought into the church and are being strengthened by the doctrines of the church and made increasingly into the likeness of Christ, Romans 8. So evangelism then adds to the superstructure. Discipleship strengthens the superstructure. And the doctrines of the church and love hold the whole building together. Paul says a similar thing in Ephesians 2 when he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Now he calls him the cornerstone here in Ephesians 2, which is sort of another way of saying the whole thing rests upon him. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we see then that in this picture of the church, that Jesus is the foundation. Upon Jesus then, you have the apostles and the prophets, and that is primarily summarized by the teachings that we have in God's word, which you could summarize them as being the teachings of, the, of Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles right here. We're studying one of those apostles today. And then you have the rest of the structure. I thought maybe a uh, visual would help us here. If you want to sort of look at it, and you know, I could have picked anything, but I, I, that, that new Dubai tower is pretty cool. Have you seen the thing that they're building? Is it United Arab Emirates, I believe is where Dubai is, and they're building the world's tallest building, and it's still under construction. This is a model of what it's eventually going to look like, but nobody really knows how tall it's going to be. They're not telling anybody because they don't want anybody else to sort of think to themselves, well, we can build a taller one. And so it's sort of a fun little thing going on. But anyway, this is the, this is the Dubai Tower. And so if you want to look at this as a picture of what the church is like and what Paul is saying here at the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. There he is. He is supporting everything else. On top of Christ, then, is the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. And not just their ministry, but also their teaching that we have here in the scriptures. And then we have... Now, for 2,000 years, this church has been built up as the gospel has gone forth throughout the world, as people have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and as the doctrines of the church have been taught and practiced, and the church has been built up now for these 2,000 years. And by the way, if you're interested in how that has happened, I did a message about two months ago where I, I walked through all of the history of the church, at least the Western church, and I think we'll probably put a link on our website to that message in case you're sort of interested in how that happened and, and want to hear that. And then, oh, by the way, I thought I'd throw this in for fun. <laughs> and by that, I don't mean to say, suggest that we're the pinnacle. But if you want to think that, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> in actuality, we would be just one little brick, aren't we? But we're glad we're a brick. Okay, so this is the picture that Paul is building. And let me ask this question, why is the church so valuable? And clearly it is. Why is it so valuable? Well, I would say that it's valuable because of its foundation. Its value is derived from the one upon whom it is built. 
and what he did so that the foundation of the church is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And by that, I mean the, the salvation that he provided by his death on the cross. That is what makes this whole structure valuable. It is, it is not so much you and I. It is not the, 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 the churches or the people because we are sinners after all. But we have been grafted in to this building and we find our value as it relates to the one upon whom the whole thing is built, Christ. The church rises then as a tribute to his love and his worth and his sacrifice and his value. In fact, you want to know how valuable the church is? Look at verse, six, uh, verse 17, which says, If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. God clearly treasures the church. Christ clearly treasures the church. In fact, the Bible tells us that right now he is interceding for his church. The Son of God is praying for the church, and that includes us, even here this morning. He is praying for us. And he longs to return for us and to be united to, different metaphor, his bride. The Spirit as well treasures the church as he is the one who applies the benefits of salvation. He is the one that uh, creates regeneration. He is the one that sanctifies us. The Spirit is doing his work. He clearly treasures the church. And so we see then in the triune God that there is a valuing of this, this church. He loves it. It seems to me that all professing Christians ought to as well. Treasure the church. But what I observe oftentimes as a pastor is it seems, again, to me, I am not the judge, it just seems to me that there are many professing Christians who put the church on the same level in their life and in their estimation as many of the other organizations in their life. So that they look at their life and the things that they value or whatever, and they have the PTO, they have the soccer club, and they have their church. Did Jesus die for the PTO? Because I've never read that in the Bible. Did, is Jesus right now interceding for the soccer club? I've never read that in the Bible. But over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible speaks to the fact that Christ treasures the church. Don't you think that we ought to as well? And as I look at what is valuable in my life, and even as we, as uh, Dustin led us earlier in, in what is your treasure, and we sang, he has made me glad, you are my shield, my fortress, my deliverer, my strong tower, all these things. What else can you sing that over in your life? Nothing in this world. And that is why the church, and I, by that I mean broadly the church, and then even expressing it in a local way with this local church ought to be at the because of christ ought to be a treasure to us and very important to us because of the foundation that it is built upon let me give you an illustration of this i recently had some family that went to shanksville pennsylvania and many of you probably know what happened in shanksville pennsylvania flight uh, 93, United Flight 93 on 9-11 uh, went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And they told me some things about it that I didn't even realize that I don't remember all the details, but 
you know, the impact was such that they, they got to the place and they didn't think there was a plane there, but there was an entire jumbo jet 40 feet in the ground. It's how hard it hit. And just all of that still is very tender to us to think about the passengers who uh, basically took on the terrorists and, and, and saved, they speculate that they saved either the Congress building or the White House, which is where they were going. I would like for you to imagine that you were a part of the White House staff, and you maybe saw pictures on 9-11 after, afterwards where they had pictures of, you know, here's the White House staff, butlers and all these people, normally very dignified and very formal, and they're just running for their lives to get out of the White House. I would Im- like you to imagine that you are a member of the White House staff, and you have the opportunity to go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And you arrive there, and you begin to look around, and you go to the crash site, what would that ground be to you? I would imagine it would be very sacred in a way. I mean, here is the place that people gave their lives to save mine. Imagine that you're there, and and, uh, in fact, this is true, they're building a memorial there. Would you be a little motivated to maybe be a part of that? Hey, is there some little, like, committee I could serve on? Can I support this in some way? Wouldn't you do that? Because, after all, this is the place that is remembering the ones who gave their life to save you. It would always be, I think, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, would always be a very important place in your life. And what would you think about a White House staff person, though, that shows up there and was very cavalier about being there? Oh, yes, there's the whole that. Okay, that's nice. You'd think, don't, you think, you don't realize the price that was paid. You don't realize what was done for you. Your attitude here shows that you do not esteem high enough what was done to save your life. And friends, this is what Paul is, the the analogy is drawing us to, is that this whole thing is built upon a very precious foundation. And when we have a kind of cavalier attitude about the church that his blood is building, it shows that we do not esteem high enough the price that was paid to save our lives. And so Christ treasures the church. God the Father treasures the church. The Spirit treasures the church. Do you? And shouldn't we? Because this is the memorial to what he did for us. Well, we come to find out that God is building upon this foundation. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Notice that. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer 
loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. That's kind of a long section there, but I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about what that means. What is Paul saying there? And let's begin, first of all, by identifying who are the builders. Let each one who builds take care how he builds. Well, who are the builders? And the obvious answer in the context here would be uh, that the builders are the church leaders and the teachers and the ministers in the congregation. Paul, in fact, calls himself here a skilled, you see where it says skilled master builder. The Greek word there is architecton. See, you're Greek scholars and you don't even know it because you know full well what architect on refers to, right? It's the word we get architect from. And an architect is somebody who carefully designs and then supervises the construction of a building. Paul says, that's me. I, as one of the apostles, laid a foundation for the church, which was Jesus Christ. Then he says, someone else is building upon it. Now, he doesn't give a name. He doesn't say Apollos. He doesn't say Peter. He doesn't say even Paul. And I think that's the point. Listen now. Anybody who serves Jesus Christ in the church, big C, is a builder in the church. Which is exciting. Because I can say to you today, if you are a Christian... You are a builder in the church. You are a construction worker, if you want to look at it that way, in in the church. And so for 2,000 years, people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who now he is their Lord and Savior, their life is, is transformed, and now the purpose of their life is to build the building upon the foundation. And so we have been doing this now all of these years. So you're a builder. You are a builder. You're a construction worker. Now, I've been on some construction sites. I was on this construction site when we uh, constructed constructed this facility. And I've been around construction sites. And you know what I've noticed on construction sites, commercial construction sites? There are many workers who are busy constructing. But you know what I've also noticed when I've been on commercial construction sites or seen them along the road? Is there are always some workers where it's hard to discern what they're doing. They're always like on the way to the bathroom or something. Or they, are, they found a shovel that is a convenient leaning uh, tool. And they just kind of, are, they're lazy. Every construction site has workers who are constructing and workers who are not apparently constructing and are content to do a whole lot of nothing. And the same thing is true for Christians. There are in the church, there are Christians who are good builders and there are Christians who sadly are lazy builders. Now on a construction site, if you show up, you get paid. There are rewards for what you do, somewhat irregardless of how much work you've actually done. This is not the way that God operates. This is not the way that God operates. We'll get into that in a moment. Let's identify the building materials that he talks about. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest 
for the day, capital D, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now you'll notice in this list of building materials that they go from most precious to least precious, right? Gold on the one end and then um, on the other end you have the uh, straw or if you grew up like me in the King James, stubble. I always wonder what stubble. Straw, just the little flaky things. Okay, so you have the two ends of the spectrum. Now notice what is true about the last three, especially as it relates to fire. Wood, hay, straw. What happens to wood, hay, and straw when there is a fire? When it is done, what do you have? Nothing. There is nothing to show for it. On the other hand, what do you have with gold, silver, and precious stones? They can survive a fire, right? In fact, I think they're purified by a fire, but that's not the point that he's making. So you have then six building materials, three of which in a fire are burnt up and there is nothing left, and three of which survive the fire. This is what Paul is saying. Is he's drawing an analogy to buildings and fires, which, of course, we understand. In fact, I was talking with a man right before this service, and uh, their house had a fire, Back in August, fires are all too common. We know this is a bad thing because there's so much in our houses that burns up in a fire. Or we could think about the California fires of just a month ago, where those fires just, they did, the wildfire just came and everything was being burnt. The fire reveals the nature of the materials in the home and the workmanship in some ways even. So I got to thinking about this, and my memory went back to a picture that I saw uh, not so long ago. And it's a little different analogy, but I think it makes the point well. Did you see this picture after Hurricane Ike went through the Houston area? Maybe, maybe you saw this picture of this neighborhood. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Based upon your expertise and your knowledge of construction, which of the many homes that are, that are uh, represented by this space, which of them would you say had a good foundation? Which of the homes in this neighborhood uh, were built well? Which of them had workers that were pretty vigilant in their construction of the home? Any guesses on that? Which of them were made with good materials based upon your knowledge of it? It's fairly obvious, isn't it? The hurricane came and the hurricane revealed which of the homes had been built well on good foundations with expertise and which ones were not. And that is a very, I think that's a very, that's a poignant picture, you know. The hurricane or the fire reveals the nature of the house. And friends, all of the ministry and all of the time and all of the things that we do in our life are investments that fall into one of two categories. They are either things that in the end are going to last and are going to matter, or they are things that in the end are going to burn up and they won't. Which did you spend your week on? Because the day is coming. 
And the fire, as he describes it here, is going to judge the quality of each one of our lives as it relates to service for the king. And Paul tells the Corinthians here that this day, capital D, which is also known as the day of the Lord, the Old Testament talks about this at length, the New Testament does as well, describing it as a final judgment, that there is this day coming when all of us will give an account for our lives. I can say this to you, Christian, you are going to stand before the flaming eyes of the Son of God. And you will give an account for your life. And so will I. Now this is not the judgment that Revelation 21 describes as the great white throne judgment. Which is a judgment for for unbelievers. For people who have not received Christ as their savior. And that judgment is also a judgment of works. But it it is a judgment of, it's a moral judgment. It is a guilt judgment. And all who stand before the great white throne will stand there morally. And the Bible says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And we need to talk about the great white throne judgment with a broken heart. Because all who stand before that judgment will be justly judged and will be sent to hell. That's what the Bible says. That is not the same judgment as what Paul was talking about here in 1 Corinthians 3. This is what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. Here is another verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10, that talks about this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that little phrase there, judgment seat of Christ, translates uh, the Greek word bima. Maybe you've heard it referred to as that, the bima seat judgment, which is a Greek word referring to uh, the Roman tribunal where people would stand before the, the, the tribunal, the, 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 the Caesar or the judge, and there would be a, then a pronouncement that would be made. And also it would be, I'm getting a little off on that, because primarily the tribunal that they're referring to here would be when the Caesar would offer rewards then to his subjects for those that have served him well. And this judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says it clearly. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It is not a judgment of condemnation. It is a judgment of commendation, a judgment of rewards. And the New Testament all over the place says that God is in heaven. Jesus is there as the king and he is watching and evaluating our lives and he promises that he will reward those that serve him and the picture that paul uses is of fire which is a very appropriate picture especially as it relates to one of the characteristics of fire fire is impartial think about the california fires you saw the video of that here comes the wildfires Those wildfires burned poor people's houses. Those wildfires burned rich people's houses. Those wildfires burned educated people's houses. Those wildfires burned uneducated people's houses. 
Those wildfires burned people of all kinds of ethnic backgrounds and social standing and and influence and all of that. It is completely impartial. And the judgment that God is going to uh, evaluate us by will have nothing to do with the categories, the human categories. There will be no advantage in that moment to being American. The American has no advantage over the African or the Aborigine or anyone else. There will be no sort of like, oh, hey, you were really somebody. Okay, hey, we're going to give you a little bit of favor. We're going to cut you a little slack here. There will be none of that. The eyes of Christ will perceive according to justice and wisdom and knowledge. He will evaluate all that we have done in our life. And he will reward faithful service. This is the point of the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. If you're familiar with those, many of you are. You know the story where the master is leaving and he gives, uh, he gives ten uh, talents to one servant. He gives five talents to another. He gives one to the final one. He comes back. He says, hey, what did you do with what I gave you? Well, the ten made another ten. The five made another five. And the one takes the talent and he went and he buried it. And the master says, okay, what did, what did you do with what I gave you? And the guy says, well, I took it and I buried it because I know that you are a harsh taskmaster. And the master says, well, then your own words will condemn you. Yes, I am. And you did nothing. He says, take this wicked and lazy servant away from me. You did nothing. But to the others, he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that is a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. Where those that have served well and have given themselves and sacrifice and service for the king will be richly rewarded. And we'll talk about what that's going to be in a later message, what those rewards are and, and, and all of that. But he will richly reward those. And those that have done nothing or little will not be rewarded. And this is why I said at the beginning of this message, if you listen today and apply the things that we're talking about, your eternity will be influenced. Because I want you to get that. There are rewards for those who serve and serve well, and there is not reward for those that do not. Which are you? Which does your life more closely resemble, as well as you can tell? And of course, there is nobody here that is the judge, but there is one. There is a judge, and that day is coming. Everything that we have done will be meticulously considered. Big things. The martyrs will be there. That would be a great day to be a martyr. Even down to little things, cups of cold water, Jesus said, will not be forgotten on that day. Things that we have forgotten that we ever did, Christ will be there to reward. So I wonder, does the thought of that motivate you? Or has it been motivating you? Or possibly, have we just bought into the secular mindset that says that all there is in this life is what is in this life and in this world? And this is what really matters is what you have in this world. Jesus says, don't live to be rich in this world. Live in such a way that you can be rich in the next world. Where moth and rust do not decay and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Be rich towards heaven. And I believe that God intends the fact that he will reward those that serve him to be a strong motivation to major sacrifice and major service and a great commitment to serving the king. Look at verse 14. If if the work that that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Friends, listen, verse 14 will radically change our lives. Radically. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Not maybe, not well, we'll kind of wait and see. He will receive a reward. If the investment is done in the kingdom of God, is done well, it is done with the right motives, it is done faithfully, it is done for the glory of God and many other categories, he will receive us. And I just think that's a wonderful thought. And I think it's something that we don't think about near enough. That what I do this week will echo in eternity. It will echo in my eternity. What I did this last week and what you did this last week has a bearing upon the rewards that I will receive someday. And I wonder if you think about this last week that you just had, how well did you do? The Bible is filled with exhortations to serve and to sacrifice in such a way that we will receive a reward someday. And let me just give you a few of these. There are many more, but here's some examples. Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense, my reward with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Ephesians 6, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Revelation 11, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants. 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run in a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. And we, we know this, of course, sports is a huge deal in our culture. Think of all the athletes. You probably watched TV, some of you yesterday, watched sports on TV, and you saw athletes who all their life have been lifting weights, and they've been eating right, and they've been running, and they've been doing practicing, and, and they've been strategizing, and they've got all the best equipment, and they're very, you know, they're very careful about how they tape their ankle and how, they, how they, they do their shoes, and they've got just exactly the right pads on and everything. They're so focused. You're going to spend, some of you this afternoon, I plan to, time watching other athletes doing that as well. And today, I was thinking about this today. Can I just, this is a side note. I was thinking about this today. It's cold outside. 60,000 people are going to be at Soldier Field today. Freezing. Drunk but freezing. And they are there to be a part of something that is very important to them. 60,000 for a football game. And you all know I love sports, okay? So bear that in mind as I make this comment. I wonder if we had an outdoor service today. And we charge you $60 to go. 
how many of us would have near the commitment that those 60,000 have today to being a part of what is very important to them? End of comment. These athletes do all that they do to receive something that in the end doesn't last. But we do what we do for what is imperishable. And finally, Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, these and many other passages show that God intends for us to live in such a way that we will be richly rewarded someday. And that that does not strip out of the service of Christ any kind of value. He wants us to be motivated by reward. And again, we're going to have another message on this. But the point is, is that God rewards us. And those rewards are commensurate with the service that we offer him. Now look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul is describing here the person who built their life, their service, with wood, hay, and stubble. This is the experience of the person who did, it's not that he didn't do anything. He did things, but he didn't do anything that mattered. He didn't do anything that lasted. He didn't do anything that was permanent or that would have eternal reward. And the imagery here is vivid. Of a man, like, leaping out the window of his, his dream house, his life's work, only in time to turn around naked and to see all that he did crumble to the ground and burn up. He is saved But he has nothing to show for it. He is there, but naked. And friends, my heart goes out today, and my heart looks at my own heart today, and wants to ask the question, how many of us are spending our time building, uh, as one of my favorite band's uh, lyrics says, castles in the sand. We are spending our time building our lives and all the time and all of the energy and all of our thoughts in things that in the end are going to burn. There will be no, there will be no reward. There will be nothing. This is the person, it says, who suffers loss. And the loss there is not that he is condemned to hell. Rather, that he gets to the judgment day and there is a realization of what his life could have meant for God and what his time could have produced for God and what his talents and treasures could have done for God if his life lived on earth had been lived differently. He looks around and he sees others being lavishly rewarded by Christ and he sees the reward that could have been His and the commendation from Christ that could have been received. And friends, I want to tell you, we have no idea what it's going to be like to step into the spiritual eternal world of of heaven and to stand before the king in all of his glory and to have all of the angels and the seraphim and all of that there. It's just resplendent. It's like nothing we've ever experienced. There is the king. 
And now comes my opportunity to stand before him and to know that all that I did in my life on earth is now being evaluated impartially by the king. And to know that I will then have either from him the reward of a life lived well, or I will suffer the loss of a life not lived well. Nothing will be better than hearing from him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nothing. Like you're going to be there going, that's what I want to hear. I want commendation from Christ. And nothing will be sadder in that moment than disappointment. Now, I want to address right now what I think some people are thinking. Some people are thinking right now, well, at least I'll be there. At least I'll make it. And I got to thinking about, like, what word could I come up with to describe a mindset that says, at least I'll make it. And I struggled between some, like, mashing of words together, which I sometimes do. But how do you make idiotic and stupid go together? I don't know. It just, it's not, it's a tough one. To plan to fail. It reminds me of my buddy, Brian Wright, who played baseball, and this is a college buddy, played baseball in college, and there was a guy in his team with him. His name was Larry, and uh, Larry uh, was an education major, was studying to be a teacher, but he, that's the problem, he never studied, like ever studied. He was just one of these athletes who, you know, and my buddy went to him eventually and said, Larry, how are you ever going to be a teacher if you don't study? And Larry's response is classic. He responded by saying, what? You didn't have any bad teachers? Now there's a bright one, don't you think? (laughs) Planning to fail. I would say, I don't know that that guy ever really wanted to be a teacher in the first place. And similarly, I would say to somebody who says, well, at least I'll be there. Have you really ever come to grips with the real Savior? Have you given your heart and life to him in what is saving faith? Because it's hard to see how somebody who just sort of looks at it like a, I don't care if he's happy with me or not, I just want to make it. Is that saving faith? Is that a heart that knows Christ as Savior, I'll leave that for the Lord to judge. But I'd like you to think about even this last week. How'd you do this last week? Is what you've done this last week, what echo is that going to have in eternity? Has, has there been this last week for you any gold moments of ministry? Any silver acts of service? Any precious stone moments of of compassion or was your life spent this last week largely building things that in the end won't matter and we're going to spend time on what these degrees of reward mean but i have a burden today for 
our church. Because if I can say this pastorally, and I'm not, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not the judge. I am not the judge. But I want you to realize that there is one. And that day is coming for all of us. And my burden is, just pastorally, it seems to me that we have some who, from what I can tell, are not building anything. You've got a shovel around here that you're leaning on. And you think, well, everything will be fine. Do you realize, friend, you're going to stand before the king and you're going to give an account for your life. And I want you to be rich. I want you to be rewarded. I want to hear, and I don't know how this is going to be, how this plays out. I don't know if we get to be a part of, every, of hearing what happens with other people. I just don't even begin to know. But I would love, I think, I hope, to be there with the Bethelonians who are being evaluated and to hear from Christ over your life. Well done. Well done. Enter into your reward. I want, I want that for you. And I want you to want that for you. I don't want you to view your life as being foolish. So why not ask God to give you a heart today that resembles the words of Jim Elliot, which I have loved for so very long and many of you know. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or maybe the little statement that was on the plaque in my home growing up. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's a lot of truth in that little statement. There's a lot that will change the way that we live in that statement. There's a lot that will change the way that we spend our time and our resources and our hearts. I want you to be rich. I want you to be rich towards glory. And in the end, by the way, there is no glory for us in the sense that, hey, look at me, because all that we do is by grace. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So in the end, Christ gets the glory. But what a good we get from the hand of a generous master. Perhaps we could just stand for a moment. I, uh, I'd like to pray.